0: It was about 2 weeks ago that I was 35,000 feet in the air on an airplane when I first heard the news about what was happening in Boston. I was going on a trip to Jacksonville, Florida with our pastor, Pastor Brady Boyd, and he had borrowed my iPad to watch the news and so here we are in the middle of a plane and he's tapped into the Wi-Fi and he's watching, you know, some news stories and I'm reading my book and he nudges me and he says, "Glenn, Something's happened at the Boston Marathon. And needless to say, for the next hour or so of the flight, we were glued to my iPad mini watching the news unfold with utter shock and horror. It was hard to sort of be in the mood for anything else later that day or even later that week. Probably for most of us, we followed the developments and even the manhunt and all of that stuff on news networks or, if you're like me, on Twitter. Watching things unfold real time. As I was reflecting on that this weekend, it occurred to me how interesting that scene of, of me sitting in the airplane, Brady and I, watching the news unfold, and how, what a paradox that is. Because here we were with the latest, greatest technology, in an airplane, flying across the country, with a mini computer, with the internet. And yet the news that it told us was utterly barbaric and horrifying. And it occurred to me as I was reflecting on that this weekend that progress has lied to us. Progress has told us that if we would just get enough, make enough discoveries, have enough entrepreneurs, have systems in place, have technology advance, that we could civilize the world. And yet it seems to me that at the turn of this new century that with all of the great hope and promise of technology, there is all of the despair of a world in fear. This was not unlike the scene actually a hundred years ago or so. The early 1900s were full of optimism, this time mostly emanating from Britain. There was good feelings about the empire and about business and about the ability to civilize the world. Christian missionaries shared this optimism. In 1910, in Edinburgh, Scotland, there was a gathering of uh, over a thousand Christian Protestant missionaries. The 20th century was dubbed the Christian century because there was so much hope that the kingdom of God was going to work alongside the progress of the world, the progress of democracy, the progress of technology. But within a decade, all of those dreams came shattering apart because of an event we now call World War I. Our century is not that different. Lots of hope, lots of optimism, lots of belief in the triumph of a particular political view, the triumph of a particular economic plan. And yet here we are, 13 years into the century, very painfully aware of the trouble in the world. And something deep inside us says, not just that progress has lied, but that there is something deeply wrong with the world. Something wrong with the world that's beyond what a new leader or a new empire can fix. That really what is sick and broken in this world is beyond the scope of a few new laws, though new laws might be helpful in curbing the effects of evil. Here we are, Forced to sort of pull back all the pretenses of progress Forced to say the world is not right And the answer is not simply a new theory or a new leader or a better bomb The answer is the king And deep down inside of us, what we want to say is, why won't the God who made this world come and be king in it? Why won't the God who made the heavens and the earth come and be king in it? Do you know that the shocking announcement of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the shocking, stunning announcement of the Gospels is that God has, that He did. The stunning claim of the gospel writers is that in Jesus Christ, the God who made the heavens and the earth, has come to rule right here and right now. He's king. And we find this hard to believe because we say, "Well, well, hey, take a look around. It doesn't look like God is running the show. It doesn't quite look like everything is the way God intends it to be. No, you're right. His reign is arriving. His rule is arriving. His kingdom has already begun to touch down. Here it is. Now this is better news than we suspected. What we thought Jesus was going to do was announce forgiveness of sins and then take us away on His private jet. Instead, what Jesus says He's come to do is He's come to reign To make this earth an outpost of the kingdom. To make this city, this place, this square footage that we stand on, to make this claimed by His rule and by His kingdom. What does this new king do? This is what we want to know. Alright, if the Gospels are announcing that God has at last become king on the earth, What's the first thing this king does? Does he unroll a kind of a new plan? Does he does he does he un- unleash a plan of liberation? What does this new king do? Do you know what Jesus does? He inaugurates a new community. He founds a new people. He founds a new community. So well that's I mean that's kind of head scratching. Why would why would he do that? Jesus starts this new community within this world the way that someone would plant a garden in the middle of a trash heap. Something new is springing up from within something that has gone terribly wrong and terribly bad. Maybe you haven't realized this, but by being part of the people of God, you are part of God's garden in the world that is a wasteland. You are part of the garden in the midst of a wasteland. You are this something new springing up within this world. The last couple of weeks we spent talking about church and about mission. And, and someone, one of you came up to me after last week and said, Hey, what about making disciples? Isn't that part of the church's mission? And, and, and there's no mistake about it. Matthew 28 is the section we call the Great Commission, where Jesus says, Go into all the world and make disciples. But do you know what the Great Commission then goes on to say? Jesus says, Teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. The Great Commission actually points back to an earlier section in the book of Matthew. Matthew 28 actually points back to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is this collection of teachings. It may have been one sermon or it may have been compiled, but St. Augustine in the 4th in the century or so names this the Sermon on the Mount. That's the series we're beginning today. The Sermon on the Mount is the series all through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and it's going to take us all the way through mid October. We'll have a couple of standalone Sundays here and there, but it's going to take us there. What we want to know about this sermon is what is it? And what does it mean for us? And how could it possibly be good news in this tragically broken world? You see, the world of Jesus in the first century was not all that different from ours. It was a world where the people of God were wondering what their future was going to be. Wondering if they would forever be pushed on the margins. Wondering if the fear that seized them every day was going to be a permanent state of life. It's one thing to live under fear of terrorism. It's another thing to live under fear of the terrorism that comes from your own government. Which is what the Romans did. And Jesus comes on the scene and all of the signs from his baptism to his uh, the early parts of his ministry everybody's saying okay this is it this is God who's come to be king at last what's he going to do and he stands up and gives a sermon <laughs> but not just any sermon a sermon that introduces into the world a new kind of people a new kind of society a new community it's stunning news. Jesus is going to do this? All right, well then what is the Sermon on the Mount? If you're familiar with a portion of Matthew 5 or 6 or 7, you've no doubt heard phrases of it. Things like, phrases like, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I say to you, don't even hate. And you're thinking, yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard about the Sermon on the Mount. I try to avoid it personally because it's, it doesn't sound like Good news. In fact, one approach to the Sermon on the Mount is to say, you know what, this is new law. Everything about Jesus' speech mirrors Moses going up to the mountain and coming back with the Ten Commandments. So the Sermon on the Mount must be new law. Okay, except if that's true, it's pretty discouraging. So we think, well, I can't do that. Secondly, we say, well, maybe, maybe it's not new law. Maybe it's no law. And some of, our, some of our well-intentioned brothers and sisters from, from a, a more, um, let's say, hyper-reformed sort of background have tended to twist even Luther's understanding of law and gospel and say it this way, God is nothing more than a law giver and humans are nothing more than law breakers and so we needed someone to be a law keeper and so Jesus came along and was a law keeper and then, cool, we don't have to anymore. And it's a twisted version of the the beautiful teaching of the Reformation about the gospel of grace. But when you present law this way, what you inadvertently do is you make the law God. Law all of a sudden becomes higher than God because God's just scratching His head saying, well, they broke all the laws, so could, could someone just go and keep it? Okay, Jesus, you go and keep it. And then Jesus goes and keeps it and then we get saved because He kept it and then... Now we don't have to? Is that what this is? And so we end up with this strange polarity of either saying the Sermon on the Mount is all law, it's completely load-bearing, or we say it's no law. There's no, it's not load-bearing at all. Don't worry about it. Who cares? The whole point of the sermon was for someone to say, but Jesus, we can't. And Jesus would say, great, you don't have to. I think he would have been more popular if he had preached that way. And so, functionally, where we land is not new law or no law, but we sort of land in this place of empty law, where it's, yes, it's kind of a command, but it has no teeth because God's not going to punish you if you don't. So, functionally, it becomes just an ideal. It becomes a list of suggestions that says, well, you know, it'd be really great if you could live this way, but if you don't, hey, it's cool, I'll still let you into heaven. And part of our warpedness about this is because we read in Matthew's Gospel phrases like the kingdom of heaven. Can I set something straight this morning? The kingdom of heaven is not heaven. That's not it. The kingdom of heaven is God's rule, the God who rules from the heavens and brings his rule onto the earth. So when Jesus talks about entering the kingdom of heaven, he's not saying you get to go to heaven when you die. He's saying you get to join this new, in-breaking rule that's beginning to transform a broken world. That's much better news than saying you get to exit and fly away. Dear Lord, help us. So it's not new law or no law or empty law. How do we figure out what it is? There's two things we have to remember with the Sermon on the Mount. And the first is to consider who is being spoken to. Who is Jesus addressing in the sermon? When you're unpacking any communication, you want to know well who, who's talking and who's listening. Well, you know who's listening? It's the disciples. The reason our Gospel reading began with Matthew 4... To talk about the disciples that Jesus called, and then watching the crowd sort of follow them, is to, to help you see in your mind that Jesus is talking to this new community, the community of the called. It's His special people that He's introducing into the world. He's saying, look, I am talking to you, and the crowd is overhearing it. And actually, in Matthew's Gospel, there is this theme between contrasting the crowd from the disciples. But secondly, not just who is he speaking to, but who is the one speaking? Because this, as it turns out, makes all the difference. The one speaking is not a great religious teacher. The one speaking is not the Buddha or Gandhi or Plato or Aristotle. The one speaking is not just a teacher with good advice about how to live. Because there's probably not one of us who would say turning the other cheek is good advice about how to live. (laughs) Most of us, and I've heard it, most of us say, look, if you're hit, you hit him back. You show him. So we can't play this game of like, well, Sermon on the Mount is good advice about how to live. Because you don't really want to live this way. I don't really want to live this way. Who is speaking? It's Jesus. And Jesus is not just... Another Moses. See, if we think of the sermon as being law, then Jesus is some kind of new Moses. But Jesus isn't a new Moses. In fact, if you are kind of nerdy, and, like me, and you want to draw parallels between the Old Testament reading and the Gospel reading, and you say, okay, wait a minute, you like those Miller's Analogies tests on your you know, SAT or your Math or whatever, <laughs> God is to Moses in the Old Testament as who is to who in the Gospel? As Jesus to the disciples? No. Nope. Because Yahweh in the Old Testament is the one who's speaking, and Moses is the one who's listening. Who is that in the Gospel? Who's speaking in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus! So Matthew's not comparing Jesus to Moses, he's comparing Jesus to Yahweh. That's the blasphemy that eventually got him crucified. That's the thing that made the claims of Jesus so extraordinary, is Jesus wasn't pretending to be a good new teacher with some good moral advice about how you ought to live and life will work better if you do. Jesus becomes God saying, I'm speaking a new word. What happens when Jesus speaks? What happens when we begin to hear Jesus' call Now we use the word call sometimes to mean vocation or career or what's your calling. I want to use it this morning in the broad sense. As in the sense of the voice of God calling you out of an old way of living. Calling you out from among the crowd. The same God who calls Abraham out of his father's house. The same God who calls Israel out of Egypt. This same God in Jesus Christ begins to call a new people out from the world. I want to say three things about Jesus' call. The first is this. Jesus' call is a gracious word. It's a gracious word. What I mean by that is there's nothing you and I could ever do to warrant that call. Anybody have bad memories of you know, recess time? When they're picking teams for dodgeball or whatever, and you're like, pick me, pick, pick, no, pick, pick. And sometimes we can feel like this to say, okay, God, what do I need to do to make you pick me? Your kingdom is arriving on the earth. I want in. Pick me, pick me. And everything about our world and our culture says, well, hey, I mean, if you're not good enough, why would he pick you? Or if, if you're not well-behaved, why, why would he pick I mean, if, if your life is a mess... You think Jesus wants you on his team? <laughs> and that's essentially what the Pharisees were saying. They were saying, Look, Jesus isn't going to pick you. If there really is a Messiah, he's going to pick me. Because I have the Torah memorized. I walk around with my eyes closed in case I should accidentally lust. True story. There were Pharisees called the bleeding Pharisees because they walked around with their eyes because you can imagine why they were bleeding because they kept running into things. <laughs> but Jesus repeatedly calls the most unlikely. He goes and finds the one who's left out. He goes and finds the least qualified. He goes and finds the Samaritan woman. What? He goes and finds Levi the tax collector, what? That corrupt businessman, that white-collar crook? Jesus goes and finds the paralytic. Jesus goes and finds fishermen. Jesus goes and finds the most unlikely people. His call is a gracious word. And this is good news for you and I. What do you have to do to hear Jesus calling? I think you have to admit that you don't deserve it, and just say, I- "I've got nothing," And he says, "Right, but come anyway." His call is a gracious word. But secondly, his call is a transforming uh, sorry, is a costly word. His call is a costly word. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian in the early 1900s wrote a book called it's actually called Discipleship we have an English version of it that is abridged called The Cost of Discipleship and I've been reading it to prepare for the series because there's so much in it about the Sermon on the Mount but Bonhoeffer in the early chapters does this thing about costly grace versus cheap grace anybody heard this? and some of us kind of think oh cheap grace I've heard preachers who have never read Bonhoeffer and yet they try to attack cheap grace what does he mean? grace is free brother Grace, there's no costly or cheap grace. There's just free grace. like, dude, you totally missed the point. Because this is what Bonhoeffer means when he says that. Cheap grace, he says, is the grace that we bestow on ourselves, justifying our sin. It's the words we say to one another and to ourselves that say, it's okay, it doesn't matter, you, you messed up, it, it's okay, John. But costly grace is God conveying His grace Forgiveness on us, not us doing it to ourselves, but God conveying it to us, justifying the sinner. He doesn't say, it's okay that you did that. He says, no, you're right. You need to agree with me that this was wrong, but I've got better news than you could imagine. I'm going to set you right. But see, here's why Bonhoeffer calls this kind of grace costly. It's the kind of grace that ends up owning you your whole life. If you've ever seen the Broadway or more recently the movie of Les Mis, you'll see this, where the priest says to Jean Valjean, he says, listen, with how many pieces of silver, he says, I'm buying your soul. <laughs> you were born as uh, Jean Valjean, but you are now, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and Wolverine starts singing, and it's just kind of weird, you know, like. And then the gladiators chasing him. I don't, I, I don't know. And Then they run into Borat. I mean, it just is a bizarre story. <laughs> but it's the kind of grace that all of a sudden changes him. The kind of grace that he, he having said yes to this gift, it's begun to cost him everything. A uh, couple weeks ago, one of you gave me, it was a very generous gift, knowing my love of all things professional sports, um, well, mostly all professional sports, gave me uh, tickets to a Denver Nuggets game. I was like, yeah, go Nuggets. Big game tonight, guys, big game. And I was, I was so thankful for it. I thought, well, this is awesome, you know, a gift to a Nuggets game. And, and um, the night before the game, the old man in me started kind of rising up. And I don't mean the sinful man, I mean the old man. Like, I started to think, oh, tip-off is at 8.30. <laughs> it, it, it's in Denver. Traffic's kind of lousy near the Pepsi Center. And I guess we could take the light rail in, but that's going to be slow, and it was. <laughs> and and, it, and it, it's probably going to snow tonight. And I don't, here I am, I've said yes to this gift, and this gift is now costing me. I went to the game, it was a great game, we won. Bought a sweatshirt even, rode the light rail back down to the parking lot, it was great. Parents know this feeling. Children are a gift, but they are the gift that change everything about your life. They end up costing you everything, and yet they are such a gift that you don't even think about the cost. This is a little bit, a, a glimpse of what God's costly grace is like. Jesus' call is a gracious word, but it's a costly word because having said yes to this free gift, it puts its claws in you and says, Okay, then come out. Don't you can't live this way anymore. NC Wright gave the illustration of salvation being a bit like God saying, Hey. I've got good news for you. I'm moving you to France, and hopefully, you'd think this is good news. And you say, "This is awesome! I get to move to France. All expenses paid. We've got a bungalow for you right by the French Riviera. That's going to be beautiful. There's vineyards up here, and there's just And you're saying, "Wow, this is so great! What a gift! The gift of moving to France." And then you realize, "Uh "Uh-oh, I'm moving to France." What do they speak over there again? Oh, f- French! i got to learn French! i got to learn the language of the future. This is what salvation is like. It's Jesus saying, I'm bringing a new kind of future into the world. I am bringing a future that is whole and that is alive and that is new and it is completely different than this world that functions on selfishness and sinfulness and hatred and murder and violence. And lust and anger and control. And Jesus says, I am bringing a new kind of future to the world. But here's the thing. I want you to learn the language of that future right now. And the language of that future is love. That's the costly word of Jesus' call. But thirdly, and if we didn't have this, it would all fall apart. Jesus' call is a transforming word. You see, Moses could only teach and instruct. Jesus could actually change the heart. Jesus wasn't just saying, this is how to live. Jesus was saying, and if you abide in me and I in you, this is possible. This is how you live. This is why Gandhi, who saw the Sermon on the Mount as just brilliant ethical advice, was kind of missing it, because there is no community who could truly live this way, unless they are the ones who've been called by Jesus' transforming word. What if God really has made you new? What if by saying yes to Jesus, God really has begun to make you new? What if you believed that deep inside your heart? A couple weeks ago, I was sitting with Sophia, our oldest, and I asked her permission if I could share this, but some of you know this, but Holly and I homeschool Sophia, and it's my lot to teach her math, um, and, uh, and sometimes that works out, and sometimes it doesn't, but we were going over the times table um, this particular day, and she was getting it, but, but losing motivation to do it. She said, I don't know if I want to keep doing this, and it's too hard, and I just can't, and But we've seen glimpses in her of a very um, special sort of ability to memorize. She looked at the Nicene Creed twice and memorized it. You know, I I don't have it memorized. Confession. (laughs) And so there was was a part of me where I see glimpses in her of of things that are, are, uh, you know, in our families. And so there's a little bit of me feeling like, Sophia, I know the mind that's in you, but you don't know it yet. I know the mind that's in you, but you don't know it yet. And I wonder if there's some of that with us where Jesus is saying, I've put my mind in you. I've given you a new heart. I've filled you with the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. This is this new way of living is possible, but you don't know it yet. You don't believe it yet. A good friend of mine, early into their marriage, ran into an issue where there was a there was an infidelity, and um, in the process of that, he began to realize that he had a real problem and that it actually was a sexual addiction he began to work and get counseling and in the process there were multiple relapses and there was one point where we were sitting down and it just looked you could see the look on his face of despair of sort of like am I ever gonna be different than this we were sitting on a park bench, and I and I looked at him, and I said, "I know that this is not who you are. I know that this is not who you are. I know that you are a dearly loved child of God." And he's told me over the years of healing and recovery that have been so beautiful to be a witness to. He's told me, "Sir Glenn." You know what all of this boils down to for me is identity. The identity of who you are. That if you see yourself as this person that, no, I'm I'm never, I'm second rate, I'm, I'm outside the kingdom, I just, I don't. Then the Sermon on the Mount just sounds like just another hammer on the head saying, boom, you stink. But if you hear the whole series of the Sermon on the Mount, as one who's already been called, one who's already been loved, one who's already a deeply loved child of God, then what Jesus is saying in this sermon is, live out who I've made you to be. I'm not talking about your quirky personality stuff. I'm talking about the transforming work of the gospel. Jesus saying, I've put a new heart in you. Let that be the thing that you live out of. Live out this way. Jesus' call was transforming. Every bit about this sermon is Jesus drawing out the thing He's already put in. The New Testament reading this morning was Philippians 2, where Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But he doesn't stop there. He says, for it is God who works In you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. How is it possible to work out because God is working in? If He was not working in, nothing could ever work out of you. You see that this morning? But here's the other thing. The two pitfalls of the sermon, I think, are either legalism, moralism, Or, on the other side, individualism. It's possible to hear these next few Sundays, next several Sundays. It's possible to hear the words of the Sermon on the Mount and think, Okay, this is what me, Susie Q, a follower of Jesus, this is how I need to live. But the sermon is impossible as an individual. Stanley Harawas the, the great theologian from Duke said it this way. He said, The demands of the sermon are designed to make us depend on God and on one another. The demands of the sermon are designed to make us depend on God and on one another. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is not about the heroic, ethical individual. The sermon on the Mount is the constitution of a new people. It's the Magna Carta. It's Jesus saying, I'm bringing the future and it starts now and it looks like these people and this is the kind of people that you are. Not the heroic ethical individual, but the constitution of a new people. Identity. A communal identity. I wonder what it would look like if as part of this community we began to speak to one another the way that Jesus speaks to us. And I, do, I don't mean in this case, hey brother, I hear the Lord telling me... I, uh, that, that, there's space for that, but that's not what I mean in this instance. What I mean by that is to echo to one another the gracious, transforming, costly call of Jesus. What if part of being in this community means being with people who say, Glenn, this is what Jesus has put in you. Come on, live this way. What if instead of beating one another up and saying, hey, you're not supposed to be doing that, or hey, how could you? We say, you know what, guys? This is not who we are in Christ. In Christ, we are this kind of a people. Let's live this kind of way. And you begin to call it. So you know what, every I've seen this in you. You 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 serve people really well. You you have this thing in you where you love, where you let it come out of you and say, Yeah, you know, I I kinda I kinda have seen and you begin to echo into their life Jesus' call. Jesus' call. Calling them out of small minded, selfish, inward living and into the transforming, self giving love of this new community.